what this, these times have taught us is that you need to understand the, I used to just call it trade what you're trading, understand at least what you're trading. When you trade something, okay, you understand you want to be long or short based on price movement, momentum, underlying fundamentals, but realize what it's underpinned by, what system is it underpinned by, what mechanism, because if you understand that, that means you have a much more predictive power on where things could go and what can put strain on the system. This is the How to Trade Stocks Options podcast brought to you by 10MinuteStockTrader.com where we cover finance, stocks, options, entrepreneurship, education, and money. And here's your host, voted one of the top 100 people in finance, Christopher Ewell. Are you ready to finally learn how the market really works? Well, now's your chance. I have a free book for you over at secretinvestingbook.com. And this outlines 13 of the biggest secrets that Wall Street doesn't want you to know, like how to get a positively unfair advantage in the stock market. This is everything you're going to need all in one place. And the way to get this is by going to secretinvestingbook.com. Now, this book is free. It is free for you. I paid for the book. I just need you to help me out by covering the shipping from my office to your house. So go to Secret Investing Book right now. Get your free copy today and I'll ship this out right away and you can get the positively unfair advantage in the stock market by reading these 13 secrets that Wall Street does not want you to know. So get your free book over at secretinvestingbook.com today. The How to Trade Stock Options podcast is now exclusively on sharevision.com, the first dedicated streaming platform for the world of finance. And that's where you can find us every single week over at sharevision.com. Just head to sharevision.com to learn more and type in 10 minute stock trader in the search bar. Come like and subscribe. I can't wait to see you over there at sharevision.com, the first dedicated streaming platform for the world of finance. Hey there, traders. Welcome back to a very special episode of the How to Trade Stocks and Options podcast. Today, we have an oil derivatives trader named Greg Newman on the line. And uh, Greg, he, he, he doesn't specifically trade stocks or options. He is deep in the world of oil derivatives. In fact, he has his own podcast called the world of oil derivatives podcast, which I actually am going to be listening to uh, as soon as we get done here, because this is really, really interesting. Um, this this whole world is very interesting to me. So, Greg, I'm excited to have you on today. I've, I've you know, I, I'm, I've heard of you on other podcasts, and I was like, man, this this guy sounds like uh, somebody we could all learn from. <laughs> great, no, appreciate what you do, and it's it's always great to get more information and stories out there about finance. It's, uh, there's so much going on, like we were just saying before, right? So, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you're like me, but um, I could talk finance all day and all night. Are you that way? I'm that way because it just governs our whole world, the financial systems. I remember mm -hmm. my dad had hurt me one day when I was 18. I said, derivatives are fundamental now to what we do. And he hated that concept, I think. He's, he's a bit of a, a bit of a hippie at heart, but uh, it's true. You know, everything's governed really by our financial system now. Um, and, you know, no more so is that clear with the recent crisis. And oil is, is very similar in that respect as well. So oil and the financial system combined, yeah, you could talk about pretty much anything in the world will get you at some point in that discussion, right? So no doubt. Where, where are you based at? So uh, essentially in London, uh, Westminster, right, right next to Parliament is our main office. And we have offices in uh, dotted around as well, uh, three, three in total, yeah. 
Very cool. So tell me, tell me about your company, right? So, so you and I were mentioning this ahead of time. So your company is Onyx Capital Group, and that that's where we want to make sure everyone who's interested to learn more goes to onyxcapitalgroup.com or to find mm-hmm. you and your companies on LinkedIn. Tell me a little bit more about what Onyx Capital Group does. Well, this is it. It's uh, It's been a journey. Uh, ultimately, we decided upon a group structure uh, to basically accommodate um, our different areas of the business that have different regulatory approvals and uh, kind of positioning in the market. So ultimately, Honest Capital Group is the holding company. We've got uh, Honest Commodities, which is our market making or tra- trading arm that's strictly focused on uh, liquidity providing in the oil swaps market, which is essentially the uh, market that kind of underpins the classic futures you might see with mm-hmm. with uh, oil futures there's a there's a lot more contracts going on a lot more granularity uh, and that's where the institutions and oil linked players that's where they that's where they trade that's where they, they do a lot of their price risk uh, management so onyx capital advisory was started uh, a few years later and the idea there was part of our strategy which was which route do we go down, right? Are we, we're a trader, we're, we're actually very clear on our strategy, which is market making. And there's some nuances, it's not, it's not immediately obvious how that, how that is similar or, not, or dissimilar uh, to, to market making and other functions, but for intents and purposes, we are a market maker, a proprietary uh, trader, but we, we, we thought that rather than go down the classic you know, hedge fund route, real big directional trading and scaling that way, we realized with our strategic positioning in the market and all the liquidity providing we were doing with such a big market share, we had basically a lot of unmined dormant data that wasn't being essentially either used or analyzed or even mined to some extent. So uh, we set about on that task and that's been our journey since, you know, what is our position in the market? It's kind of moved away from a sole trader to you know leveraging that trading into effectively a service for the market to help it scale, become more democratized, uh, really powered through transparency. Right, we're all about transparency and oil markets. You think transparency like it's the most untransparent market in the world. But I can tell you, in the last ten years, it's come a hell of a long way, uh, and that's primarily because of the way it trades now. It trades a lot more electronically. It trades on a centralized exchange where it never used to. You used to have to go to the banks to even get access. And if you've seen that the big short, when he says um, in that film with Brad Pitt, and he's talking about getting an ISDA agreement to trade on the, the big boys table, that's essentially what it was like in oil. Because the only way you could really trade it was to have these you know, agreements with banks that required huge balance sheets. That's since changed because of the birth of the exchange and them starting to list all these financial contracts that no one really knew about before. So, you know, you can trade them. I think the the problem is we haven't quite made that journey as an industry for it to be accessible by retail. So whilst you might, retail might have access to, you know, ETFs that track, uh, you know, classic oil futures uh, and that kind of thing, um, the real granular stuff like, you know, 92 octane Singapore gasoline, you know, that's a contact you can trade, but in theory, that should be accessible by retail, but, but, but not yet. But anyway, the, the, the point is, is that um, that services firm is all about uh, mining the data that we have from the liquidity providing from all this transparency and trading that we've, that we're doing. Uh, and uh, as brokerage services, that's research services, that's selling out the raw data. And so we needed that to be a separate business. And uh, from a regulatory stance, it needed to be Chinese walled, both physically and compliant. And then the third part of the the kind of uh, group structure is the is the flux live, 
uh, we've called it. And that is our very niche specific to oil swaps platform. You know, we want that to be the essentially platform for oil swaps where you can get everything that's very bespoke and, and supportive for that area and, and focused on that area. And, and we're on that journey. We have been on that journey for the last few years in particular. So that Flux Live platform, is this something that anybody can access or do you need uh, special authorities? Well, yeah, it, at the moment, it is essentially a business to business platform, institutional platform. And, and that is just the nature of, of um, the regulatory side of things. And as I said, the market is going that way more so. The more that this, this area of the market can scale, the more democratized it can become, the more we can start to offer these contracts and liquidity to retail. But, you know, there's, there's a few hurdles to go on. And to be honest, it's, it's all demand driven, right? I mean, how do we know that? you know, the retail, the wider trader community are even interested in trading it. It's, it's something you, you, you will have to see over time, but I can't imagine it won't. I mean, oil is, is, you know, every, it impacts everything, as we said before. Yeah, for sure. So these B2B uh, players on the Flux Live, are these like oil companies who are needing to get actual uh, delivery of oil or are these traders or, or how is this working? Yeah. So we're absolutely focused on the financial oil market. So that is, you know, a complex beast now. And as I say, um, it's growing. So anyone who accesses Flux is all about, well, they could have physical exposures and find it interesting, but it's all about the financial oil market, which is used to hedge physical transactions. So mm -hmm. it's anyone who, you know, to be fair, any, you know, an airline, a marine um, end user, diesel users, they might need to know the price of these oil swap contracts because they are very granular. They may not trade them, but they may want the data that comes with the platform. And it's certainly accessible at a price for, for those people. Um, but uh, the predominantly the trading that goes on it is actually, uh, it's an, actually an e-brokerage platform. You put numbers through brokers, the brokers put the numbers on the, on the uh, Flux Live in an automated way. And uh, that's all the big names you've heard of, you know, the BP shells, the, mm -hmm. the, um, the, in theory, these guys, these are the guys that we want to be trading on the platform, everyone in the oil market. Gotcha. So what, what is an oil swap? <laughs> you were saying yeah, it I, underlies the future, but uh, how does that even work? What, what does that mean? Yeah, <laughs> this is probably the main reason why people don't know about it. Because how do you even define it? I think the reason if we forget the word swap, I, I like, I, I say the word swap because it's easier to dissociate it between the future. Okay. But for, again, so swaps, they call them swaps because um, they were all traded on a bilateral basis or credit lines. When the exchange started listing these contracts, they are essentially, they are futures. They're actually defined as first line futures or, or some version of futures. The big difference between them and the classic futures is that they settle on a daily basis and they actually settle to third party um price reporting agencies, we call them. So what these, what these guys do is they uh, assess the price of on a daily basis of these particular contracts using real physical transactions and also financial transactions. So there's settlement methodologies that they make you know, public, of course, because they are benchmarks, they are effectively indexes. Um, but the idea is they are a lot closer tied to physical transactions. So that's important because with the growth of financial volume in oil, when you trade things like the WTI, the West Texas Intermediate contract, the Brent contract that people have heard of, this is actually a speculative financial contract now because it's, it's something like 800% larger than the underlying physical volumes, sometimes more. You know, it, it depends where you get statistics, but certainly a lot greater than the underlying physical transactions. So um, if you actually want, so my point there is, you know, the Brent future or the WTI future 
could move up or down $5 on the basis of, you know, hedge funds or macro funds or pension funds, which has got nothing to do with supply and demand. But the swaps ultimately do actually settle uh, to the financial, sorry, the, the physical transactions specific to that region. So it gets quite complicated. But the point is, is that it closes, uh, sorry, much more closely tracks uh, the physical world. So when you talk about, okay, I need to hedge uh, a cargo, you can't just look at Brent because Brent future is governed by certain players and it's a future and it's a very financialized contract. You might be a North Sea, it might have North Sea oil exposure uh, and you want to actually hedge that. So that's got a very different price to Brent futures. And you want to make sure that when you're negotiating physical prices, the benchmark you're negotiating to and hedging with, you want to make sure that's as close as possible to the real thing. And, and that's ultimately what, what it's all meant to be about. It's meant to be this system of you know, financial contracts that effectively is the physical oil market playing out ahead of time. So mm. swaps do that a lot more closer to physical than futures do. I know that's granular, but I think that's the best way of explaining it. No, that's okay. And so that's where your company comes through. And you were saying that you act as a market maker. So what, what would a market maker do with oil swaps? I, I Forgive me for sounding, you know, totally inept on this, but I, I don't even know. What, what would a market maker do for oil swaps? Sure. So another interesting thing about this market is that it's still governed you know, a huge amount of volume governed by disproportionately very few players. So what we actually call it an OTC market, and it's, it's another confusing word to throw in there, but I think the best way to think of it is we essentially trade voice traded most of the time, voice traded to brokers and brokers are interdealer. So they, they, they get, you know, the BPs, the shells or whoever, the, the Chevrons, the Exxons, and they, they ask them what they want to do that day, or these guys come in and tell the brokers they want to buy or sell. And the broker's job is just to get a price, you know, to, to, to um, so whilst you might be able to get on a future, just an immediate price will be there because it's electronic. When it's an OTC market, they actually need to go and find a buyer for your seller or a seller for your buyer. So a market maker is just more willing to, they don't have to, of course, but they are there to basically offer a bid offer at all mm -hmm. times to, to people. So it's a very, very important function of uh, the oil market. And again, this, this particular type of oil market, you know, 10 years ago, it was, it was a bit of a nightmare because when you're trading just credit lines with banks, the thing is that that data doesn't go anywhere. That state, if you've done a transaction, no one knows you've done it. So with the exchange, uh, it actually, you do the trade, the trade details get posted, everyone sees them. So it's a lot more transparency. So you can track the market. So, so the market making that's been going on used to be very, very important and it can only be done by the banks. It's still important, but now because everything's on the exchange and digitized, um, what market making done has done has really allowed for scale because there's constant understanding of where value are, values are, or at least a lot better understood than they were before. And market makers are very active and their volumes have gone from, you know, put it this way, 10 years ago, it was something like, I think we what like one basically product, essentially, uh, maybe uh, 10, eight to 10 percent market share of that one refined product. Now it's every single product and market makers account for, you know, anywhere between 30 to 50 percent of volumes every single day that go through. So this is this is a whole new thing. And, and the reason why it's happened is because the banks essentially had to pull out because of regulation out of this area. And so independent market makers, proprietary traders who act as market makers came in and we've been on a growth trajectory ever since. So is there a risk 
as far as you're providing liquidity to the market, right? You're taking the opposite side of trades in order to get get market participants filled, right? Is mm-hmm. there a risk where you get stuck and you're not able to 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 get out of the trade that you don't like anymore? That that is absolutely the risk, and that's okay. why it's just not very. That's why it's not algorithmic and electronic yet. Yeah, because there are just so many different types of contracts. So I gave an example before, but you know, if you were trading gasoline, there's a feature called Arbob, which is the New York Harbor based, you know, um, gasoline. There's a lot of people trading it, but you might want Mediterranean, you know, European Mediterranean gas um, gasoline. You might want Northwest Europe. You might want Singapore. You might want, um, you know, in the Middle East. So um, to, to have constant liquidity on all those contracts in every single tenor and spreads and differentials, there's just way too much. You couldn't possibly lick, offer electronic liquidity, automated liquidity on that the whole time. There's just, there's just not enough volume to go around essentially on that much granularity. So very much that's part of the, that's, that is the job and that's why it's so difficult. And moments like now with the Russia-Ukraine crisis, right. you know, where the oil market is effectively you know, really suffering because the oil market is now underpinned by this whole market we're talking about which is in turn underpinned by an exchange mechanism, right? And everyone trading on an exchange. But if the exchange doesn't have enough participants and enough volume to accommodate certain trades because everyone's going one way, it's all very misfunctioning and it gets very complicated, but it actually disrupts the price because people are stuck, as you say. Do we get stuck? Yes, absolutely. And, and the cost of getting stuck can be huge, but also the cost of just, cost of just holding a position even to market make can be astronomical. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a, well, it's a very scary time for the market in a way. And, and you know, the trade houses and majors that participate in this market, they're, they're ringing the alarm bells as loud as they can to governments, to regulators and, and the like. That's actually one of the questions I want to ask is how is this whole situation, um, how, how are you guys handling this whole situation? Because now, granted, obviously, I, I know very little compared to what you know, but from what I understand, like but Russia oil, Russian oil was a pretty substantial player in the market. Now that's is that just gone. And what happens now? Yeah, I mean, this is exactly <laughs> it. Uh, you know, up to this point, people love to speculate, right? This could happen. This in theory, we call it like geopolitical premiums and things like that. And, and it justifies people's narrative to why they should be long or short. The research houses, houses discuss it and it moves markets. Mm. But when something actually happens, then you're like, oh my God, this actually did happen. There is actually Russian oil that's genuinely not going to come on the market or at least highly disrupted for a time. What do we do? Mm-hmm. Basically, no one has the answers. What, what happened is... Um, Everyone essentially had to lower, uh, well, de-risk, we call it, right? Close out their positions. They had to, essentially, they were frozen. They had to stop trading. Um, We had to kind of just wait and see. And there was a big consolidation period where we were literally just waiting for the market to get um, orderly again before people could start trading. Then when you talk about the actual impact on the physical oil market, well, it's still not understood, right? The initial reaction was just fully media driven. Mm-hmm. You had majors oil companies saying, oh, we're pulling out of Russia and we're doing this, we're doing that. And then, you know, Shell got absolutely destroyed. Sorry about that. The, uh, Shell got absolutely destroyed for um, buying a cheap Russian yeah, cargo. Yeah, I heard even, that. even though they were allowed to do it, they were allowed to do it. They cleared it with the government. But, you know, the court of public opinion were not happy and um that's unfortunately you know the downside of having such a big brand because a lot of other companies have been buying the discounted oil and it's kind of their job they're almost like the market makers of physical 
They need to be buying and selling this stuff and moving it around the world. So it's very, it's very convoluted, but essentially I think now that there's the hype has kind of died down a little bit, I think people are starting to figure it out a bit more. The Russians are absolutely exporting a lot less. So people like to say, wow, 10, they, they produce 10 million barrels a day, that's offline. No, that's, that's not how it works. They've, they've got 10 million barrels per day of production. They keep a lot of it themselves and, and refine it themselves. Um, they obviously supply their own domestic market. Russia is a huge, huge country. Uh, so it's mainly about Europe because I don't think any, any Europeans really now can get away with buying that oil. Uh, so that's, that's the situation we're in, but of course, um, you know, China, for instance, pretty much never, they never said they were going to stop. They've been circumnavigating Western sanctions in Iran for years. They're going to continue to buy the oil. India's just said they're going to buy the oil. So it's not going to be as disruptive as people say in, in, in the macro scale, but, it, but the thing is about the oil market is that, you know, when we talk about, let's say it's 1 million barrels per day or 2 million barrels per day, that's offline. It's all about the marginal barrel that sets the price. So even though it's, you know, that's 2% of oil production, it sounds like we can produce it easily uh, over time and, and accommodate it. It's not really how it works. I mean, it's all about that marginal barrel. So if, if that marginal barrel is being sought after and there isn't an offer there, it will just go higher and higher and higher and higher. And there's really no, in theory, any blockage to that because you, there's just no number because no one can give you, and that's when systems start breaking down. So it's, it's, a, it's a real tricky one but I, I don't i don't think we're quite there i think what gives the impression that we're there is um all the volatility in the financial system and i harp on about this all the time people love to say the oil market the oil price the oil price so which oil price because a physical oil price is, is a physical oil price that you'll negotiate with a physical producer or, or or end user or whatever but actually what we're referring to is the benchmark right the financial contract and that financial contract that moves around that actually sets the price for physical guys, right? They, they look at that price and say, okay, well, um, I'll negotiate whatever that is, plus or minus $2. That's how they'll negotiate. But when, when the system, the financial system that underpins that price breaks down like it is, then they can't rely on it. So then they have to, it, 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 it's going to create a lot more opacity and a lot more uncertainty. And, and I think we're, we're still in that period. So when you ask what's going to happen, we're all still figuring it out. But I would argue that, um, you know, there is more increasingly more understanding of of this kind of pressure on the markets. The banks are, I wouldn't say they're happy, but, you know, they're in a good position because they've made a lot of changes since the 2008 crisis. They're in a much better position to accommodate some of the requirements needed to do this to support the system. And ultimately, let's not forget that as much as there is not enough oil in the world, this is an artificial scenario. You know, we are in the middle of a production cut, an organized production cut from the Middle East countries, from OPEC and Russia. So people love to say they don't have enough spare capacity. They're in the middle of a 28, well, no, they're towards the end of a 28 month production cut. So as soon as they decide to bring that oil back online and the US keep ramping up because they have a lot of spare oil that they could continue to produce if they get their logistics sorted out, we will, we will, we will be okay. But it's just, it's just, you know, the mania and the panic doesn't help. And going back to that point, you know, if the financial system and the players can't last for the next few months and they can't trade anymore and the system breaks down, and what I mean by that is, you know, the price not properly functioning, people not able to hedge and, and therefore 
uh, trade around the world because they need it as part of their risk management. You know, that means that's just a very, that, that could spell, I don't even know how to put it, just, just disruption to how we currently do things. So how it moves forward is anyone's guess really, but it might unfortunately mean that the financial system that has been centralized on this exchange, we may actually go back to the, the, bank, the banks, going directly to the banks, which no one really wants because so much growth has happened, so much transparency has happened. So if we go back there, we're kind of making a backward step in the, in the oil market, but, let, but let's see. Yeah. Okay. So tell us how you got into this world, right? I, I assume Greg wasn't just uh, you know, born straight into the oil market, but uh, how did we get here, Greg? There, there, there's a lot to unpack to get you to where you're being the expert that you are today. How did we get here? Oh, for sure. I mean, so ultimately um, out of a university, uh, I worked for um, a company that uh, was actually gas focused, but also oil. Um, you know, tech type stuff, to be honest, interested in the industry, not particularly interested in, in that side of things at the time and not particularly strong at it either. Don't think I was a very good employee, but um, I, I did want to get into trading um, or at least, you know, something revenue generating in the industry. I, I had a particular passion for the industry because actually my brother was already in it. Um, he was working at a bank, but generally, you know, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating market and anyone can see that. So I was particularly interested. I got a great advice from someone actually at the company that said, look, what do you want to do? You keep saying you're looking for this, looking for that. What do you actually want to do? I said, you know what? I want to be an oil trader. He's like, well, don't focus on anything else. Go and find an oil trading job. So, you know, very serendipitous. Um, there came up this job advert in London, which is where I was, that was only looking, it was a hedge fund or, or hedge fund type structure, a proprietary trading firm, only looking for junior traders, not looking for senior people, only looking for junior oil financial traders. So it was very, very funny in a way. It couldn't have been more specific because at the time it was a very tough job market in like around 2012 in, in, in the UK. Anyway, so went to do the job, well, sorry, went to apply and, um, and it was rigorous. It was, uh, it was uh, the type of tests where, you know, you've got like um, heart rate monitors, you're in there at six and you leave at seven that Wait. night. They're, wow. They're doing tests where they're saying, you know, they're trying to get you to, you know, survive under or, or test your ability to survive under pressure, right? And, um, you know, you're doing three things at once, you know, probability games, uh, I don't know, um, Excel type sheets. And in the meantime, if you, if you do something wrong, it shouts wrong in your face. So it was a, no, it was a pretty interesting experience. And the guy who designed it, um, you know, is actually one of my best friends now. So it's uh, we've come a long way. But uh, anyway, um, you know, that that was it. I joined that firm and, and th th they were genuinely coming in at, at the perfect time because whilst they were very small, it was um, financial oil trading just as the banks were pulling out. So the story I was saying at the beginning about where the oil markets come has come for the last 10 years that pretty much began with these guys uh and the model was essentially there was one desk with an ex-bank trader who very much understood markets he essentially hired a bunch of junior traders uh 20 22 type type age and we set about you know learning from him in, in some ways but also just going figuring out ourselves and going into this market that historically no one had really understood and trying to figure it out and amazingly uh Again, maybe in retrospect, it was a lot more about strategic positioning and luck than we realized. But I think um, it was amazing how we were able to figure it out and do very well very early on because anyone knew nothing. And it essentially came down to it was a very inefficient market. And so that led to the primary focus being essentially quite basic 
you know, arbitrage trades, you know, buying this one contract against another, trading the forward curve. And really the edge was about attention span, concentration, working all day. You know, we get in at five, leave at 12 and just repeat, repeat, repeat. I take the night bus to work, had people throwing up on me as on the way to work. But I loved it. You know, it was um, it was amazing because we were, you know, these kids getting exposure to this huge market. And, you know, we were, we were small players, but it was an amazing time. But what, what started to happen was um, we actually started to get the scale just, just you know, just took, uh, how to say it? We just scaled. <laughs> so, you know, one day we were, we were doing bits and pieces. Then we're starting to figure it out. We have a good year. Then we really ramp it up. Then it, it's this weird thing was like a virtuous cycle because we were doing more market making and market making didn't really exist before. Suddenly people were getting more, more of an understanding of how the markets worked, more transparency. So more players were coming in and it just went like that. And uh, I, you know, myself and my you know, friend who I started Onyx with, we, we went into uh, new markets. I, I went into the North Sea market, uh, crude market. He went into the gasoline. And we figured it out, you know, how to trade this stuff. And, you know, really it, it built up from there. The, the market built up from there. The volumes blew up. Uh, everything started to take off. But to be honest with you, we got to the point where we had really formed this very specific type of trading in our own areas. So much so that um, we, we felt that we had essentially a monopoly on this style of trading. We'd formed the broking relationships. We'd formed the necessary kind of understanding of how to trade in these environments that we didn't feel, even though we were young, that anyone else had because they were so focused on hedging. They were so focused on speculative trading. So given we built this and given we could see how much more there was to do, we felt that, look, we should be doing this ourselves. And the, yeah, the main reason being we weren't at the, at the, the business didn't want to take this type of trading much further than it was they didn't want to take the risk that was necessary they didn't want to grow it they it was just it was just not conducive to i guess our ambitions and you know some of them childish ambitions you know wanting a name for yourself you know wanting to uh rule the world i guess type thing but uh, ultimately you know it was a great time i was only 26 when we uh resigned uh myself and omar who's now you know my best friend and we um we set off to to do it and uh i think the challenge was you know okay we we know what we're doing but you know we're gonna have to start from scratch you know we spent a lot of time thinking about that and uh, he's actually from sri lanka went to sri lanka spent a lot of time thinking about it and it came down to we felt that you know whilst there was a lot of opportunities still here it was actually frustrating for bigger trade houses and things that such young people who were inexperienced could have such influence in the market and i think there was a general feel that a blockage you know we knew we could do that but then firms weren't willing to accept it so especially when you're working for older people or you know other firms that be legacy firms they don't want to accept that this is an upcoming area so we needed to make sure we could get backing from the right investors we needed to make sure the banks would trust us we got those two things and that certainly was a challenge but luckily we, we had a good enough reputation through the broking market and all that that we were able to do it but really it came down to can we create something that is a sense of mission that goes beyond just the market making that goes beyond just trading. Cause the thing with trading is you're effectively self-employed. Mm -hmm. You know, you sit down, you've got your own strategies, you've got your own belief in yourself. All these things are very, very important. It's very key man risk driven. So we didn't feel that, you know, whilst we could have made money and all this kind of thing, it was, well, look, we do actually need to build something that goes beyond that. And we were very passionate about doing that. And so it, 
the first step was to create a vision for going beyond just market making, just just being a presence. But obviously, we still need to we still needed to uh, hire, train, build up this presence that we mm-hmm. did over over you know three four years to get to the point and go from there. Um, but we always had in mind that we were we were trying to get here, and that here is what I what I started off saying with the capital group structure. You know, what can we do? with this growing market making presence that's really influential in the market do we just keep making money or the fact that we're paying so much brokerage we're paying so many exchange fees we clearly have something here there's clearly data in what we're doing that surely must be useful for the market and we you know the, the famous story in the oil market uh, you know probably about again 20 years before we started was Jay Aaron. Jay Aaron was the commodity, is the commodity division of Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs bought Jay Aaron. But Jay Aaron were essentially a brokerage um, in oil and they were excellent at what they did and they were very well ran. And Goldman's bought Jay Aaron, but they very much dominated the oil market. They started coming up with their own indexes. They offered research. They offered um, essentially liquidity and they had the full thing. And whilst that was the regulatory stance of the of the industry of the world, they were able to do fantastically well. But when everything changed with the exchange coming in, the banks having to pull out, there was this evolution of the market that no one had really got to grips with. We said, well, look, we are the number one liquidity providers now Like in our areas. We now need to build that into the whole market. And we now need to leverage that into services, into research, into a platform with data. And we've had to grow our evolution of the business with the evolution of the world. You know, data didn't really used to get talked about before. Now, no one, no business is going to, you know, going to operate without some kind of consideration about data, either about themselves or at least sourcing it. You know, it's all about data, data, data. It's a big macro theme. So we've had to incorporate that more and more into our frontline strategy. But ultimately, that sense of mission and doing something beyond just, or oh, let's just trade and make some money, we felt was very exciting, very real, because we'd evidenced we could do these things. And um, I think that's helped tremendously for hiring, but also retaining. And you know, we offer equity to the best employees so they can have a real sense of this. And as we're on our journey, you know, whatever that crystallization might be, it might be it might be going public, whatever it, whatever it is. You know, we want these guys on that journey with us. And it's about it's about the camaraderie and about doing it together. And again, something bigger than ourselves that I personally feel, and I am biased, but I personally feel that's why we've been so much better than our competitors. You know, we say we're number one because it's verified. Well, there's 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 awards and things like that, but it's that we've got, but it's also the statistics, you know, our statistics, we are the largest volume player in the oil, oil swap market, and that's fact. So that's I feel so proud to be able to say that. But really, it's not me at all. It's not. I mean, Omar is fantastic, fantastic trader. I mean, that's that was what he brought to the table, right? Absolutely fantastic trader. But even he can't do everything, right? So we've we it really what it what it's been about is hiring and training these traders that have really been exceptional and embraced the kind of mentality of Onyx and mentality of what we're trying to do. And I think that feeling of it being bigger than themselves has allowed us to to basically dominate the area. And, and retain staff. And it, it's what I'm so passionate about. So when we talk about building other areas, of the, other areas of the business, I don't want to forget, you know, it's the same model. Okay, it might be something different operationally, but what allowed us to succeed when we were such small players, had no credibility, people were way against us. And that's where we built these principles. So you know, it's very hard to be consistent when things are all over the place. So the only thing we could be consistent with is our principle framework. And rather than say, oh, we want to be nice guys and this, we, what we came up with, which was kind of 
underpinned by our own journeys um, was essentially stoicism. But really at what came out of that was the resilience to get through such, you know, enduring times, right? You know, the 5 a.m. starts and 12, you know, me and Omar used to do that together. We were comrades, you know, back at our last place. And that builds a sense of unity, but you have horrendously tough times. And it was a very dark, tough culture, but you get through it. You A, build a fantastically strong bond, but also, you know, your resilience is an edge. If you can get through what other people or most, if not all people can't get through, then you are going to come out ahead just by definition, just by surviving. So, you know, it's the same thing as special forces. It's the same thing, like, you know, that you hear it. Okay is it the biggest strongest person that gets through these selection programs as the best special forces no it's the most resilient the most able to just switch on their mind and just get through it so that's our number one principle but we also love to say you know it's about the humility and not humility in terms of oh i'm such a nice guy whatever no it's you know have an ego that's fine you know you need an ego sometimes to take ownership of things but um the humility to learn from your experiences to really reflect and have this kind of self-learning approach when it seems like the darkest thing possible. And you can still say, let's keep going from, with a resilient attitude, but let's learn why that didn't happen. Review it and go again and have this relentless approach to self-improvement. That's a really big thing for us. And then finally, it's accountability. You know, really take ownership of this whole thing. It's, it's, it's up to you to decide your journey. So we've stayed true to that in every single hire we've made, or at least tried to. And some, obviously some people slip through the net. Obviously some people are negative no matter what. But I'm so proud of my staff. I mean, we've got up to 80 people now. And we started off with, you know, me, Omar and three grads, you know, that we trained. And that's the number one thing I'm proud of, because even if we fail, at least we're going to fail in the right way, you know, with a principle based approach, with a team that's unified with this, with a behavioral focus that, you know, it sounds almost cliche. Maybe I don't I don't care. It's it's genuinely what's made the difference. And you don't have to look at the statistics for that to back up. You know, you could have gone to a competitor's. You probably could have, maybe could have got paid more. I don't know. But people have decided to join us, train with us and stay there. And that's the most important, stay there. And we're, you know, we're still going and we will keep going for a long time. Yeah. Wow. That was, that was a lot. Okay. So <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. I was making notes as you were going. So yeah. I had a couple of questions. So you mentioned you had a monopoly on this style of trading mm. at one point. Is that still the case in what you're doing now or did it evolve since then? Yeah, no, it, it's essentially a yes to both in a way, because, um, you know, I think in market making, it, it's so broker focused, right? The brokers are get pooling, you know, there's loads of different brokers from around the world. They're pooling interest from trade houses and they need reliable sources to bring that liquidity to. So you know, I've got buyers, I've got buyers who can sell. They always go to a market maker. So if you've got the best relationships and, you, and, and the best relationship is the best working relationship, you know, like they can rely on you to supply an offer when they, and they can, they can rely on you to stay there when you show a number, you don't show it and then disappear, you know, these kind of things, you're a reliable counterpart or reliable client in this context. Um, that is very, very important because once you, you do that, the market sees you as reliable, the broker sees you as reliable, and also your skill. If you're getting the flow, you should have the skill, or if you're in that position in the first place, you'd imagine you have the skill to be able to convert that reliable flow into, into revenue generation. So it's a bit of a situation, your first or your last, you know, Ricky Bobby, but uh, it's one of those things that like, it's probably enough for probably two big market makers, but there's always a number one. And our, our, we, we, 
you kind of insist on being number one or number two in every oil swap market we're trading in. And we're, we're probably at 95% there. Um, and we've got some more work to do with some of the products, but ultimately um, you have to be number one or two. And um, that that's one thing. But the second answer to your question is, has it evolved? Yeah, absolutely. So when we first started as essentially kids who didn't know how to trade, mm-hmm. you know, we were just learning about trading principles and things like that, but it was quite basic arbitrage. You know, you, as long as you've got the pricing sheet and you figure out how these contracts are priced and you, you understand how to basically manage the risk, there was enough different people around the world doing different things, not thinking about the efficiency of the curve, that it was actually relatively straightforward, I've got to say, as long as you done the hard work and formed the relationships to be able to extract value out of the market. Of course, that doesn't last very long, right? It's natural economics, you know, it's a path to efficiency. And so the arbitrage has decayed, you know, as you'd expect. But it didn't, ironically, whilst there's an efficient price, running price, that doesn't make the market movement efficient. You know, ultimately, if you believe that markets are efficient, well, I can't, I can't help you, right? I mean, that's the thing. Is <laughs> basically, um, what I'm trying to say is we had to evolve our trading style. Market makers had to evolve their trading style to be more risk-taking, essentially, and more govern their trading and their liquidity providing through understanding of patterns, through reading people, through relationships. And really, it's a lot harder to be good. But ultimately, we've made that evolution over time. And, uh, you know, if, if you've got the, the behavioral attributes that we talked about, you know, in particular, the self-learning, you can adapt. And, and we've shown that we've adapted. And I think um, people say, you know, market maker is going to die, right? Because, you know, you guys are just doing what an algorithm could do. And you're like, well, in theory, yes, but this is a hugely complex market with thousands and thousands of contracts and permutations of those contracts, like I explained earlier. You know, no, it's, I don't think it actually ever will, maybe to some extent. But if anyone's going to do it, it should be us. Because, you know, we can pull our liquidity onto a platform and it can become systematic over time there. But again, that's trying to leverage our strategic position. So there's a, there's a lot more to come, but um, I hope that answers your question, essentially. Yeah, for sure. So, so let's, let's go back uh, not too long ago when oil prices went negative, right? That, that was a, a crazy short week or two when all that went down. What was that like in your realm, right? Because I imagine that there was a lot of stuff going down over there. Well, this is funny because usually the response I usually give to that is actually there wasn't that much going on. And it's a bit of a weird thing to say, but I'll tell you why. It was a very specific contract that went negative. And well, it was a WTI contract, but it was the prompt and it was expiring the next day. So no one was really trading it because as it gets close to the expiry, people roll to the next month. Mm-hmm. So that's why the WTI contract is really governed by financial, you know, herd trading, trader psychology, that kind of thing, because they never actually take it to expiry. They roll it to the next month and they keep rolling it as it gets. So, so they, they never really crystallize um, the positions aligning to the physical because the WTI future does eventually price to the physical, but only if you take it to expiry. So if you roll out of it, you get what I'm saying. The thing is, there are people who don't mind trading it close and onto expiry because they actually do have knowledge of the physical or, or they actually have access to the physical in Cushing, Oklahoma, which is what underpins the WTI. So if you take the contract all the way to expiry, you're going to get, you're either going to buy or sell real oil in Cushing, Oklahoma. 
So there's certain nuances to that. So that, that can cause price distortions. You know, somebody might flood the market with oil, might buy it all up, and that can cause fluctuations in the prompt. But actually, it wasn't really even that. What happened was, um, it was on the market was on a trajectory south anyway. That was that was well understood. No one no one really wanted to be long that market. So the combination of people trying to roll out of that contract, people wanting to sell that contract, meant it was on this really like sharp trajectory south. So some savvy kind of local traders, we call them, independents, use a pretty classic strategy that's uh, from the pit trading days, which is essentially buying the trade at settlement contract, which basically means a contract that whatever the price ends the day at, you'll, you'll have a position at that point. So if you buy the settlement contract, you're saying whenever, wherever it ends up at the end of the day, that's the price I'm going to get long at. So if you know you're going to get long there, you can sell earlier on. And then if it goes down and you get long at settlement, you make the difference. Um, but that selling pressure on top of all the other selling pressures meant it just kept going, kept going, kept going on tiny volume. So it was just a distortion based on a financial nuance. So to be honest, we just stayed well clear because mm. we, know, we, know, we know about these things. So I had journalists like, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on? But you're like, you know, there's nothing you can do. It's it's a nuance of the of the prompt. And if you've got exposure to that, you know, you're a little silly because you should have rolled it. You shouldn't really be exposed to these types of things. And I know it's kind of a frustrating thing in a way to hear because it's like that was the headline, you know, negative oil. Wow, it's, you know, but oil didn't actually go negative in terms of the financial contracts, really. Um, only that one brief time did they do that. And that was with one contract. I did hear though that there were some physical prices that did go negative for a short period of time as well. But as I said before, that doesn't, that's not really the, the headline benchmark contracts we trade never really got negative. Gotcha. Well, you know, yeah, absolutely. That was the headline. And of course, somebody in, in your space, I definitely want to uh, get your perspective on it. So let me, let me ask you, so recent developments in the LME on nickel trades, are you following this at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, so they're like canceling entire days worth of orders and things like that. And that that type of manipulation by the clearinghouse, like that, that's nerve wracking, right? Imagine the NASDAQ says, hey, all stock trades today, we're going to cancel them all. Like that doesn't really seem to work if you're going to have uh, a liquid market. What's your perspective on this? This is what I mean when I say the breaking of the financial system, because it's so obvious to everyone that there's not a you know, commodity uh, super cycle that was being talked before. It hasn't happened as we expected it in terms of why. The why was because we've cut out all these commodities, but it doesn't matter. The outcome's the same. There are not enough commodities in the world. So when you're buying these contracts, yeah, of course you expect them to go up. But the thing is when all the buyers overwhelm the sellers so much, what is the price? And this is the problem. What does the financial system do? So there's a lot to get into, unpack here, but I'll try and make it brief. Ultimately, the market open becomes very important because on the market open, you have all the buy orders. And this is pr pretty much the same on most commodities and certainly oil. And you have the sell orders. And so the, the, the exchange opens and then you start trading. But the first trade will be, you know, basically an interpretation of the average sell volumes and the average buy volumes, you know, they're just, the market will open with those traded and that will, that will set the price. So basically it means that buyers and sellers have set the price because all the trades are happening at an average of this, this, this level. Right. But when there's no sellers and there's only buyers, how does the market open? So what happens is the market goes, well, there's no sellers. So I just need to keep going up until 
I find enough selling volume. But what if there just isn't selling volume? So what happened was there was a huge, well, there was a market short. And I think people understood that most probably, although I haven't looked in in that much detail, I'm not a nickel trader. But the thing is, is that on the combination of all these factors, they know this short trader needs to cover their position a bit like the GameStop stuff. Um, I was actually just, I actually wrote down that just a second ago. I'm like, this sounds a little bit like GameStop. <laughs> this is it. This is yeah. the financialization of everything. You know, we, we know, we'd known about financial markets, but with, you know, the retail boom, eToro, all these kind of, you know, that basically happened during 2020. These GameStop type things are starting to be way more understood. People don't really have respect for all the fundamentals that we talk, we've talked about in the past. You know, stocks should be valued at this. Why? Stocks, stocks or finan- anything financially traded is settled by the buyers and sellers. And that's it. And that's what we say with our research. <laughs> I really like your perspective on that because I have had that exact same thought. That's how we trade. That's how I teach people to trade. It's, it's all about price. Like, I don't care what the fundamentals say. Like, it has no actual bearing to what somebody else is willing to buy or sell at that price. Yeah, well said. Then, so then you need to understand the way you determine price, you have to determine the market state, i.e. how are people positioned? And then what, what's the expected incoming flows? So when you're overextended like that, when everyone's buying and there's a short, and if you can understand where that person got short and you know they're under pressure and the market's going up and up and up and up and you still know they need to cover their position, you're putting the squeeze on them, right? Mm-hmm. And the problem was, was that, with all the momentum from all the global markets and commodities in particular, nickel just just it were through the roof. There was no limit to where it could go. In one, there was a, in theory a limit, but there was no liquidity on the sell side to stop the rally. So LME were left with a very essentially this is it. You know the trader in it that we're talking about um, would have had a you know some kind of risk limit with the banks because remember we're trading on leverage here. There's no one who trades financial contracts on a notional basis. So he, he's, he's not putting down all the cash of the notional value of nickel. He's putting down a fraction of that. So he, let's say he has a billion, right? He's lost his billion. That's it. So his agreements with the banks are, you know, anything beyond that, that's your problem because I've, I'm defaulted, I'm done. But these banks now have to fund a move that is in theory endless. I, we don't know how much that could have gone up, right? It could be like 10 billion. Right. And if you take people might say yeah good screw them okay fine so the bank now has lost 10 billion guess what happens next they don't want to finance anyone else again so how how do you get access to trade the markets they won't allow you because they don't want that risk so people are saying it's it's unbelievable it's disgusting but if you want this financial system to maintain that's why they made that decision because what was their alternative to basically not exist that was it's very scary to be saying these things but at the end of the day a financial system is imperfect of course and that's that's what people are worried about in oil i mean what could happen if there's just no sellers and it, it i mean there could people could just never trade again and it would go back to um just only physical transactions maybe that's a good thing i don't know some people might say that is a good thing but that's what people need to remember here so just just to reiterate that point it all comes from trading under leverage you know, if you had to put put the full amount of cash that was equivalent to your notional value, for instance, if you had, you know, 100,000 barrels of oil, which is a pretty standard size, the notional value of that is times by 100, right? So if you can, if you can afford to put all that cash up and everyone does the same thing, yeah, you're fine. If you lose money, well, it goes to, you know, whatever. But at the, at the end of the day, that's not how it works. We trade at a fraction of that and it's the banks that have to support you. So if you blow up the banks then no trading. So 
it's pretty messed up because it, we're actually talking about the 08 stuff again. It's gone from a debt crisis in CDSs, in property. It's not really being talked in the same way, but I see it as the same issue. It's a financial system that's under threat because of all the, the leverage, which is debt. It's the same thing. So whilst people might be up in arms, they've got to be careful and clear about what they're saying because do you mean you want no market or do you want a market that has to say, look, cancel these trades. This is just too much. It's not ideal, but it's the lesser of two evils, I would say. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, this has been quite an enlightening conversation, Greg. I really appreciate it. I, I, like I said, I could talk about this stuff all day long. Yeah, yeah, and I know you do too over <laughs> on the World of Derivatives podcast, in addition yep. to everything else that you're doing every day. Um, yeah. What was that? Is that like a steamship outside? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it's a car. Sorry. Okay, you're all good. You're all good. Okay, that was like perfectly timed. <laughs> all right, man. Hey, hey, this has been a really enlightening conversation. I want to make sure everyone goes and learns more about you over at onyxcapitalgroup.com or finding uh, you on LinkedIn or on um, your companies on LinkedIn. Greg, what what is a, a parting piece of advice that you could give uh, to our listeners out there? Oh, wow. You really put me on the spot there. Um, I would say what this, what this, these times have taught us is that you need to understand the, I used to just call it trade what you're trading, understand at least what you're trading. When you trade something, okay, you understand you want to be long or short based on price movement, momentum, underlying fundamentals, but realize what it's underpinned by what system is it underpinned by what mechanism because if you understand that that means you have a much more predictive power on where things could go and what can put strain on the system so it will really help you form a more literal view rather than a kind of speculative view you can actually understand the components that will move the market and that's a very convoluted answer but i think that is people need to understand that so i think that's that's my advice learn about your contracts and the system that underpins it as much as you possibly can that makes a lot of sense. Well, Greg, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Uh, um, I mean that a lot. Thank you for your time. I'm probably keeping you uh, from actually making some money out there. So I really appreciate that very much, man. Cheers, Chris. Cheers. Have Cheers a so fantastic weekend. And thank you guys for tuning in to today's podcast. Make sure you like, subscribe, and enable notifications. That way you never miss any of the tools, tips, and tricks we upload every single week. Help you trade faster and trade smarter. I'll see you on the next episode. Hey, don't forget before you head out, head to secretinvestingbook.com right now to get your free copy of the Secret Investing Book. This is how to finally get a positively unfair advantage in the stock market. And it has 13 of the secrets that Wall Street does not want you to know. And I want to send this to you for free today. Just help me by covering shipping. And the way you can do that is by going to secretinvestingbook.com. That's secretinvestingbook.com. And I'll ship this out for you right away. Thanks so much. I'll see you there.